And welcome to the Overboard Show, where today we are uh, we are very, very fortunate. We have a guest. We do. We have well, a guest who is stopped at the moment in Jakarta, but on <coughs> their way around the world for Race for Water. Uh, we are joined by Annabelle Boudino. Thank you, Annabelle, for joining us today. It is lovely to have you. Thank you so much. Uh, nice to talk with you today. How are things in Jakarta? We're suffering a heat wave over here, and it's not very Oh, pleasant. don't worry. It's also very warm in Jakarta. <laughs> we <laughs> haven't seen rain almost in a month. Ah, we can feel that pain. So, um, for, for our listeners who don't know that much about Race for Water, Annabelle, could you, could you tell us a little bit about the origins, where it started with um, Marco Simeoni? Marco Simeoni, yes. That's <laughs> Just doesn't roll off my tongue the same way. <laughs> well, we, we did actually practice that name for about five minutes. I even have it written down and it still doesn't roll off my tongue. <laughs> There's it written down phonetically. No problem. So Marco Simeoni, a um, Swiss entrepreneur who decided to create uh, the foundation Race for Water in 2010. And uh, um, in 2015... Uh, they set up a first odyssey, round the world odyssey. The goal of the foundation was to protect water, then it um, came to the ocean more precisely, and then um, uh, the foundation identifies uh, plastic as a major threat. So today our goal is to fight plastic pollution in the ocean. Uh, can I clarify a little bit more? You're, you're not just doing this... Um, and we'll get into the many different programs you have. But at the moment, we're talking to you and you are on board um, what I can only loosely describe as the most amazing catamaran I've ever seen. But um not even sure if that's a proper description. It's, one, it's <laughs> yes, a giant um, solar panel floating on the water. Which can <laughs> yes, also yes. propel itself and people can live yeah. and eat on board. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> so um, I just go back a little bit to the history of the foundation. So in 2015, uh, we'll, the foundation launched a first odyssey. And the aim of this was to go fast around the world with uh, the aim of measuring plastic pollution at different um, a point uh, close to the gyres where the oceanic streams gather the plastic waste and you find the biggest concentration. So it was with a sailing trimaran, a MUD 70, they are still uh, racing um, today. And uh, the conclusion was um, we cannot talk about a seventh continent like it is the case sometimes in the media. It's more a soup we are dealing with. So there is high concentration on, of plastic, but um, it's at different uh, layers of the water. It's not only in the surface. Mm -hmm. And studies have shown since that uh, what is on the surface is only 1% of it. The rest sunk. Mm -hmm. So um, the conclusion was um, it is very um, not possible to clean, unfortunately. And uh, while we are talking, the plastic is still leaking into the ocean. So the foundation focused on uh, prevent the leak, stop it. And in order to do this, uh, the 2015 Odyssey also um, give us the answer because uh, we realized that aluminium cans uh, are nowadays uh, well recycled since aluminium uh, is more expensive to produce than to recycle it doesn't end up so much in the nature so it doesn't end up so much in the ocean with these two conclusions um, Marco Simeoni took the decision to launch a second odyssey so the one we are doing now and we are at about half of it um, right now in Jakarta we crossed the Atlantic the first year then the second year was uh, more the Pacific, and here in Indonesia it's the end of the Pacific. And uh, this second odyssey, we have the luck to do it on this uh, very amazing boat. So it's the biggest solar catamaran ever built. It is. And it is uh, a catamaran. I just yes, catamaran. 
It, I, I have to say, just looking at the shots of it, it looks beautiful. Um, I, I, there's a bit of me that would love to know what the interior is like because um, it's just, for those that haven't seen it, it is covered with solar panels, which I presume are, are you can all walk on and they're very durable. Yes, so we've got 500 meters, square meters of solar panels. Um, sun is our main source of energy. And um, yeah, it's possible to walk on, but only for people who know how to do it. They are actually a bit fragile, but uh, okay. still, uh, most of them um, are there since the construction of the boat, which was in 2010, not for our foundation. Oh, okay. So the boat was constructed, but then you you changed it for um, for your purposes. Yeah, yeah. It's a nice story. Uh, so in the beginning, the boat was built in Germany, in Kiel. And the um, goal of it was to go around the world only with solar panel, which uh, she did in 2012. Oh, okay. And then... Only on solar yeah, panels. Yeah, the, uh, solar panels, batteries, and electrical engines. So, so, so okay. when she was originally built, she was originally built with solar panels in mind? Yes, yes, oh. yes. The, aim, mm -hmm. the name of the project at that time was Planet Solar. Mm -hmm. And um, actually, the person carrying the project is today one of our ambassadors and is the one that convinced in 2015 the owners of the boat to give the boat to the foundation race for water so it has a nice second life wow and a second tour <laughs> yes. of the world and a in an even more impactful way yes 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 <laughs> so uh, as we, when we had it in 2015, we thought uh, that the proof was already made to, that it's possible to go around the world with solar panels. So the foundation thought, how can we improve the boat? And when you think about renewable energy, there is um, several challenge. Uh, first, when you use the sun, there is not sun all the time. Mm -hmm. <laughs> so it's nice to add another source of energy and then the second biggest challenge of renewable energy is to store it since, yeah. um, as I said, you don't have always the energy. So we also thought about a way to store uh, more energy. So um, to answer these two questions, we came with uh, two different technology. One is a kite wing that is uh, developed and was installed on the boat by the company Skysail's Yacht. Um, from Germany and uh, it's a 40 square meters kite that allow us to tow the boat when the, it's a downwind wind. Okay, it's so very interesting. kind of a, a, a <laughs> bit like kite sailing. I mean it actually is a, a, it's a kite that drags the boat. A kite that actually <coughs> propels the boat providing you have enough wind. Yes, yes, so the, the kite tows the boat. Um, uh, the kites we have, they look more like a paragliding wing. They get uh, inflated with the wind. So when we want to set it up, we put it on top of a mast and we let the wind uh, blow it up. And once it's nicely uh, inflated, we just let it fly attached to the boat uh, by a rope, which later on tow us. Can, so, could I ask? I, I I just remember being a twelve-year-old boy in a park, and uh, with a small kite of about half a meter in width or whatever, a very long piece of string, and uh, my friend, and I just remember running and running and running and trying to get this kite in the air, and it would it just would never go. <laughs> which was very frustrating. So we did a lot of running, but we didn't do much <laughs> kiting. Is it difficult to get a 40-meter... Maybe that was our mistake. Is it difficult to get a 40-meter kite in the air? And secondly, when you run out of wind, it, I, I presume it just plops down into the water. Is it difficult to retrieve it? Well, let me go a bit more into the, um, the way it works. 
Actually, to uh, take off, we need 15 knots of wind, which is not so uh, unusual when uh, we are offshore. It's um, quite fast that we get this um, amount of wind. Mm -hmm. Of course, we need to be downwind, but if we are in the right uh, direction and the wind uh, blow nicely, then we can uh, take off sorry, launch the kite. <laughs> okay. Then we let it go up to the altitude of about 120 meters. And when we are there, the system is uh, equipped with an automatic pilot that pilots the kite. The kite is attached to a little robot and goes, this little robot that we could the pod, go up in the air. And once it, has, it is at the flight altitude, we start the program and the program um, uh, give instruction to the pod and the pod make a figure of eight with the kite. So this allow to increase the wind that the kite sees and directly the strength on the rope. Wow. So once, <laughs> wow, impressive. Yes, I know. It's like he would have done so much better had he had a little robot attached to his. So kite. I, I was I was picturing a sheet with a piece of rope tied to it, just dragging you along. That's uh, that's very impressive. Yes, yes, actually it doesn't really look like a little robot mm. as we could imagine it. It's mm. kind of a white box, but still it's quite impressive. Th these were obviously <laughs> the mistakes I made when I was 12 years old. <laughs> um, but not, not, not wishing to distract from uh, why we're talking, because we don't want to be talking about kites and my problems as adolescent. Um, the, the, the problem with the plastics in the oceans... Um, I was reading it. There's a Frenchman. I was trying to look it up, but I couldn't find it. There's a Frenchman at the moment swimming from Hawaii um, to America, and he's he's actually swimming through these. What was the name he gave it? Ge geyser, geyser, the gyres. Uh, gyres, forgive me. Um, yes. He's swimming through those, and there's a video on YouTube about what he's doing, um, and it really is shocking to see. The, the volume of plastic that's that's floating in the Pacific Ocean, and I'm sure it's the same in many other areas. Um, what do we do about that? Or uh, how is uh, how have you had the oh. same experience as you've been traveling? Because you're now kind of halfway through this five-year trip. Has it has it been shocking at certain points? I mean, we all know it. We've seen it visually. But having the first-hand experience of being on board and looking in the water, have you had moments of going, oh my goodness, look at that, this is why we're doing this? Yes, 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 of course. Um, when we were sailing uh, to Easter Island, we could uh, see lots of waste in the water. And we were also doing samplings. And we realized that uh, not only there is micro waste, but there is also these microparticles. Mm. And uh, these ones, they are really impossible to collect. So this is very preoccupying. And um, in Easter Island also, this is really uh, shocking because um, every year there is tons of waste that end up in the beach of the island, all around the island. And uh, we did a beach cleanup, and in only two hours, we were able to gather um, 300 kilograms of waste. In so two hours? Really, yes, yes. <laughs> yes, this is very uh, impressive how much uh, you can find, and that's really shocking. And uh, we also stopped in an um, uninhabited island called Saray Gomez. This is a bird sanctuary, and you can see how much the birds suffer from it, like they use it to build the nest and they also take it for food and then they die of uh, starvation because they are not able to digest it. So yes, of course, this is really shocking and um, or in New Caledonia we could see mangroves that are uh, literally um, uh, uh, suffering uh, from the, the plastic, they cannot breathe anymore, they, they don't grow, you just see a, like a field of plastic with no more trees in the middle of the mangrove. And uh, this is of course very sad. Mm. I'm sure d seeing it up front, you know, we, we've seen the images um, 
but uh, I think the images have been there for a lot longer than they've actually hit the public in the media eye. Um, but I, I know first-hand experience of, of seeing it up front when you're beside the water is just a lot more disturbing. So I think for me, uh, of course, seeing it in the water was disturbing. But when I had the real digit, then it became very scary because um, uh, so it is estimated that about 10% of the annual production of plastics end up in the water. And uh, nowadays we are producing about 400 million tons of plastic every year. So 10% of it goes into the water. That's more than a dump truck every minute. So can I ask, what, so, what's the point of ingress? Well, where's, the, where's it mainly getting into the water? Because... You know, in in our society, we do the recycling thing at home. We put them separate in bags, and then when it leaves our house, we we like to think we we kind of like that fuzzy feeling of thinking we've done a good job. That's now going to be responsibly recycled. Um, <clears throat> it's not always the case, though, is it? And um, where's where's it actually getting? How is it getting into? the oceans are people just dumping it in the ocean is it being carried down through rivers uh, is the wind blowing it in what was where's the big point of ingress or do you know well i think this well, was the uh, whole thing for when you were doing it you realized that actually knowing that the the focus had to be on land because that's where the plastic was coming in yes actually um uh, bad gestures of course that doesn't help, but um, most of it comes from mismanagement. So if you have a big city like Rio de Janeiro or coastal city, and uh, you have lots of waste because there is so many people they are producing lots of waste and uh, it is general all over the world that we underestimate we will build a landfill and think it will last for 20 years and then in 10 years it's already full and there is no budget to build a new one so the waste start to piles up and every time there is a climatical event then it, that creates a big leaks into the nature into the river and then into the ocean and also here in Indonesia, but that's also the case in lots of places all over the world, you have villages that are close to rivers and they are so small that there is no infrastructure for waste. And the people, they still have the habits to just throw in the water. Since they don't know what to do with it, they just throw in the water and it just ends up in the ocean. And some of them think, okay, this is not so good to just put it in the river. It doesn't disappear like this. So. What do they do? They just burn it at open air. This is really also mm -hmm. not a good solution. Mm -hmm. Now, I remember, um, you, you're probably far, far too young to remember, but when I was a kid, it was, it, I wouldn't say it was acceptable, but it was not unusual to see somebody in a car roll down the window and just throw a, a empty Coca-Cola can out or a finished plastic bottle out and roll up the window again. And I imagine in a lot of places in the world, this just finish something and throw it in the river. Um, there's, it, it's acceptable because it's the norm. So well, I think they have no choice also. When there is no infra infrastructure, what, what are you going to do? If you have no option, then that's what happens. So it's, um, it's a general problem. You need, uh, the people need to be aware that this is a problem. And uh, also the infrastructure, the government, and so needs to provide uh, what the people need uh, in order to dispose from this waste. Also, have you, I mean, looking at Western worlds, because I mean, even here in Mallorca, you know, they have recycling plants and everything, but you can see when there's a big rain, um, just even in, in a country, Spain, that has the infrastructure and things put into place, you can see how much waste gets caught up into the system. You know, if you drive down a motorway, you can see rubbish and plastic bags and this is even without people throwing. So there's, I'm, I imagine there's still a certain volume that even with the system in place still gets caught up and 
put down and put down sewers, put down drains. Um, one of the big issues we have with the luxury of um, washing machines is we all have fleecy things. So we're washing our fleece, fleecy things, but then we have microplastics and microfibers going into the water system. I don't have any fleeces. So even in a Western <laughs> world where we have things in place, we still are responsible for a certain volume of microplastics and plastics still getting into the system. Of course, and um, not only this, um, the thing is recycling uh, was uh, the big answer because when plastic arrived, there were already scientists saying, hey, uh, your, this material is very durable, very nice, but that might also be a problem in the next years. And the answer was, don't worry, we will recycle. Mm. But it is estimated that only 9% of the plastic that was produced uh, was actually recycled. So recycling is a failure, in fact, for two reasons. Because this is too hard to recycle. Because in the plastic, you have all this additive, so it has a nice uh, shape, a nice form, so it has a nice color. Uh, you also have additives, so it doesn't uh, burn too fast, and so and so. And these additives, they makes it very hard to recycle, because you would need to sort out every precise plastic and recycle it as it is. And uh, that leads to the second biggest problem, it is not costly efficient to recycle. So in the fight, uh, recycling doesn't work and that's the main issue we have and uh, you know what uh, we are happy in Europe but here in Indonesia so we have the feeling that we are doing good but here in Indonesia they still receive containers which has uh, plastic waste inside. Uh, part of the team was in a village uh, in Surabaya and they could see that uh, there is field of plastic, villages covered with plastic because Indonesia is importing uh, papers because they have a lack of cellulose so they have certificate to import paper but there is some bad organization that managed to hide waste in these containers and this has been lasting for 25 years so yes um, uh, so this is smuggling, also really far from being perfect in Europe they're smuggling the waste in Yes, yes, exactly. And uh, the containers managed to reach the country because of the certificate for the papers and half of the container is also full with plastic waste. We and uh, the people then um, are struggling to do something out of it. It managed to give them a little income. So in piles of plastic, they are looking around to find a little, maybe a cans of aluminum or a PET bottle that they will be able to sell for a little money. And then the rest get just burned uh, to feed a tofu oven. So oven that uh, to boil the tofu. And uh, so the plastic is just burned at open air. It's very black uh, smoke. <laughs> so. God, and noxious <laughs> as well. So um, yes. uh, one of the big things you have been doing is, as you travel around, I, I know you're in Jakarta at the moment, but you've been running educational programs for, um, for schools, for, uh, is it all ages? How, how do you set up the educational program to sort of bring greater awareness? So we start with uh, 10 years old and um, uh, then uh, also a student and then we adapt a bit the speech. Uh, what we do in education of course is we focus on the rules of the R. I'm sure you've heard about it. <laughs> so we have... Um, Just for the listeners who haven't, <laughs> what is it? <laughs> yes. <laughs> So, um, so we have actually five R's. Uh, the first one and the most important one is refuse. When you, you can think of many situations where you don't need this nice little plastic object. If you go shopping with reusable bag, you can say no to plastic bags. If you go to a bar and order a cocktail, you can say no to the straw. You have a mouth and most of the time it does the job very well. Um, if you have with you um, a thumbler, then you can refuse to drink uh, water out of plastic bottle. 
And it goes on like this. It can be uh, everyday work to think, how could I uh, avoid to use this plastic? Um, then the second one is reduce. Um, we are also tense um, and attract to consume a lot. And sometimes we can think um, if we really need this or if it's just uh, marketingly induced, let's say. So mm -hmm. we can have also a little thought that we don't really need this. And then the third one is reuse. So average uh, lifetime of a plastic is 20 minutes. So oh, this is very scary God. because yes, this <laughs> we is are nothing. Of, yeah, this is nothing. And we are talking about a product that was made at the other side of the world that was carried with a cargo ship most of the time, but arrives in the country that goes into a truck to go to the place where it will be distributed, to go to the place where we will buy it. And in the end, we buy it, we go home and then up. It become a waste and it's thousand years to disappear. This is really a nonsense uh, in terms of energy and of course in terms of um, a sustainable uh, world. So yeah, at least you can give it a longer life. Then the fourth R is repair because um, it is also too easy nowadays to just throw something and buy a new one because most of the time it's much less expensive to buy a new one. So at least you can try to repair. And uh, the last one is recycling because uh, today recycling in the fact doesn't work but it is still very important that we keep in mind that sorting out our waste is the best way to reduce it and uh, hopefully and i think that's in discussion with big companies uh, they will uh, work so recycling get more efficient so recycling is also very important so one of the interesting things i i thought in particular was uh you talked um about, well, Race for Water talked about uh, circular economy in order to bring value. I mean, I, I, I say this because I remember as a, as a kid, particularly in the States actually, you would get five cents for a can. And so, um, you know, it was really cool to collect up lots of cans and bring them down to the supermarket and put them in the machine and you would get, you know, 50 cents. As a kid, it was fantastic, but it was actually very motivating to get people to um, do something with it when there is a value put on it. Um, one of the things I thought, it, it's not a new idea, but it's certainly not one of giving incentives um, in the idea of a circular economy to motivate people more. Yes, yes, of course. I did not know that was the case in the United States uh, back in the days. Yeah, years um, ago. But I think it's, it's still, I think it it's still is. If you, uh, yes, if you ever watch American um, uh, cop shows where they have the homeless people, they're pushing trolleys. And quite often you'll see them pushing trolleys of, um, full of cans and uh, bottles or whatever. Uh, and I think in England as well, some bottles that you can redeem money. Yes, yes, that's also the case in Germany. In Germany, they also use uh, still a lot deposit. So mm. you buy, um, like it was also in the case for milk, also back in the days. But in Germany, they went on with the deposit, even for plastic bottles sometimes. And once the system is in place, I think this is quite an effective one because you don't need to create a new product. You reuse it um, quite a good amount of time, and that's uh, very interesting. So, but uh, once again, this is only for a small share of the products. There is lots of plastic that doesn't have uh, any value anymore, like uh, multi-layers and uh, mixed type of plastic. And uh, also in some places of the world, you will find the proper recycling facilities, but um, in lots of other parts, and especially small island of the Pacific, you will find nothing. So in that case, it is interesting to have a solution that is able to treat most of the plastic. And um, so when 
the foundation came back from this odyssey in 2015, they also thought that they need to find a solution to give plastic a value, but not only certain type of plastic, but the biggest range uh, as possible. And uh, they looked into the company that were already uh, working in this field and they identified Etia, a French company, and they designed with this company a machine that is dedicated to treat plastic waste. How does it work? First, you need to uh, shred the plastic to obtain uh, pellets. Mm -hmm. These pellets, they are sent into an endless screw, a reactor, that eats at the same time the particle of plastic. Uh, it eats at 800 degrees with no oxygen, so we're not talking about a combustion, but a pyrolysis. And the advantage of the pyrolysis is that you crack the molecules of plastic and transform it into a gas, what we, that we call syngas. This gas can then be cleaned and condensate. You have a little uh, solid residue. You also get from the condensation uh, oil residue. And in the end, you obtain about 80% of gas. And this gas can be used to run generators in order to produce electricity. But so is, it, is it, do you then need a specific, I mean, what kind of gas comes out of it at the end? Do you need a specific generator in order to use it? The generators we are, we are using are uh, quite standard. They are not uh, very complicated. They are called dual fuel. And uh, the gas you obtain varies. Of course, it varies with what you put in. But mostly, you have hydrogen and methane in certain proportion. So uh, the generator is able to accept um, a, a variety of mix of gas. So that's not a problem. The only uh, problem uh, we have is with PVC, because PVC is a very special plastic mm -hmm. which has chlorine in it, and this is very, um, this is very uh, bad for the, for the materials. It attacked the, the metal, and so we would be able to treat PVC, but that would imply that we use very cost the materials in the reactor, so that would lower the economical efficiency of the process. So we choose that uh, we would not treat PVC, only a tolerance of 1 to 2 percent. And this is actually quite fine, because in most household uh, waste, you don't find PVC. PVC is more a plastic that is used in the building uh, field. Okay. So it seems yeah. <laughs> During our Odyssey in the stopovers, um, we conduct what we call the ACT program. So we talk with the, all the actors around these topics, producing electricity and waste management. And uh, we conduct uh, feasibility studies. And um, for the moment, it was shown that the uh, rate of PVC we found in household waste is acceptable. It's in our tolerances. So when you get when you're stopping off, do you do you get a chance to talk to some of the decision makers and bring forth these kind of ideas of look, here's one way you could manage waste. There's this you know fantastic way of um, burning it down and creating a gas and um, and have you found as you've traveled certain cultures are more open to progress than other cultures? I think it is general over the world, most of the people are now aware that plastic is a problem. Mm. They realize that um, the world in the last 50 years got really dirty up to a point that um, it is very sad today when you go to the beach to see so much plastic and end up doing beach cleanup rather than collecting maybe shells or so. Mm -hmm. So I think in every country where we stopped, there were people that were very happy to see us and talk about this problem. And that actually, that brings me to the basis of the foundation. We've got uh, three pillars. Uh, we call it the three drops. So learn, 
So LEARN is through scientific expedition um, uh, improve the knowledge uh, around uh, plastic pollution into the ocean. Then we have the second drop share, so it's also what I'm doing now, sharing with uh, lots of people the knowledge we have about this plastic problem. We had more than 4,500 uh, children on board since the beginning of the Odyssey. Wow. <laughs> Yeah, and then I've got four uh, kids, so I can one. imagine. Ah, <laughs> we can bring them when we are back to France, maybe. <laughs> we'll be happy to do a visit. And um, then that brings us to the last uh, drop, so ACT. Uh, we want to be the uh, Odyssey of hope, not the Odyssey of very scary digits. <laughs> so, <laughs> so of course, with kids we talk about the R's and also with adults actually, not only with kids. But um, we organize also on board what we call workshop, where we invite uh, people from the government, people from the waste management, people from the electricity field, a non-governmental organization that works um, to protect the ocean, and um, also um, companies that already uh, do something because uh, in their process they introduce a way to do better or they created their business around sorting out waste. and. Uh, we talk with these people, we also give them the opportunity to do the speech if they need, so they can also meet with the, their uh, communities, with the other people of the island. And we all talk together and um, yeah, about um, what's the problem, what's their specific problem, and uh, how we can together find solution and, um, and Sometimes it ends up with a feasibility study and hopefully we would like to have the first proof of concept implemented as soon as possible. For the moment we have a pilot that runs in France, in Berne, mm -hmm. and uh, hopefully um, soon we will have some proof of concept running in the stopovers we did during this odyssey. Wow. Is this a fight we can win? What's the best you well, What's the best you can hope for, given that only about five percent of the plastic in the oceans is visible? That um, it's a a mix of the, the microplastics are incalculable. It's um, it's everywhere. Uh, what's What's the best you can hope for, given our situation? Well, stop the leak. I think if we manage to stop the leak, then nature will get rid of the plastic that is already in the ocean. It will just end up on the beach, it will sink in the bottom of the ocean, and after thousands and thousands of years, it will come back into petrol. Um, of course I have hope, because otherwise I would not do this job. <laughs> <laughs> and what gives me hope is that uh, we've seen the worst, and humans can be responsible of the worst, but they can also be responsible of the better, because in lots of stopovers we've seen amazing non-governmental organizations working very hard to raise awareness, um, tirelessly <laughs> spread the words, and um, we've seen uh, very nice initiatives and people who are fighting very hard and um, with when this kind of people keeps going on and when more and more join then the fight can be won sure i think as well there is i mean we have children as well and they have noted i have recycled for years i mean even in Ireland before recycling plans came in, I used to go down to a center. And one of the things my children noticed was how much, how much more aware people are now, particularly in, I mean, microplastic, the term has been around, I think, since about 2009, 2010. We knew about microplastics, but I don't think it hit the public consciousness until probably the past three or four years, if that. So I think there is a, a much greater awareness, particularly in this younger generation go coming up, on uh, what's been happening and what's happening in the world. 
And with that, I mean, even in the past six months, I have seen so many new innovations of how we can make plastic differently. You know, a new kind of plastic that can be broken down, another plastic that's made from cactus, recyclable um, drinking bottles made from plants. You know, the London Marathon had these water pods. Unfortunately, it wasn't an entire success because there were still other bottles. But um, I think with a growing awareness, it motivates innovation a lot more quickly to find solutions and to put in place solutions um, that true, true. I'm with you in, in being optimistic because I think that's the only motivating factor we can have. True, true, I agree. Um, we only have one little concern about this um, alternative uh, plastic because um, I think for the moment this is normal because everybody is taking interest uh, in it and there is lots of different initiatives. But we need to be cautious because uh, it, it's not uh, because it disappears from our eyes that the molecule doesn't exist anymore. And um, sometimes um, you can make something as durable with maize as it is with uh, petrol. So, and for the moment, uh, it is not very well organized. We had the luck to meet one of the specialists in France of this topic. She works for Plastic at Sea. Uh, in France and she is in charge of um, organizing the labels in France around this topic. Uh, if you say biodegradable plastic, she wants to prove that it really biodegrades up to the molecule stage. Mm. So for the moment this is not very clear and um, this is sometimes I think a bit confusing because when you talk about biosourced, it's really different from biodegradable. And for what we've seen, for example, we've studied some bottles of plastic in New Caledonia that were said biodegradable. So we went, look into it, and we found that they were biodegradable because after eight months, only 17% of it has disappeared. But and this is in a land situation. So what happens if it's in the water? Because the bacteria are not the same. So, and in eight months, it has the time to impact animals and uh, biodiversity. So, I'm still very cautious. For me, the really the more important is refuse and ban as much as possible single-use plastic. For me, this is really the priority. I I totally agree. I I just unfortunately, if you look in the average house. And, you know, I, when you move house and you're trying to clear things down and you look at the volume that we now have from, from not just what we're buying domestically, you know, when you, when you buy your produce at the supermarket, but everything from toys to keyboards to, it is so pervasive in our lives. I wonder, can we, um, I don't think we can go back to where we were 70 years ago in a world that we didn't really have plastic. So I think we will still, as a as a humankind, look to replace it in some way. Of course. Because of its but functionality, then, if, if no, nothing there's else. There's also the shaming thing. I remember when um, you were at a time when having a fur coat was a fashionable thing to have. And then fur became... Um, something that really wasn't acceptable anymore and the fashion industry got shamed into using false fur and not real fur um, one of the biggest if I'm not mistaken one of, one of the big contributors to uh, plastics and microplastics is the fashion industry um, the amount of plastics that are enclosed that then you put in a washing machine and microplastics then get into the oceans. Um, is that something that should be happening? Is that some social movement that shames people for wearing plastic content clothes? Oh, no, I, I mean, uh, as per myself, I think um, ecology needs to be fun 
not uh, punishing. And it can be actually. You, you talked about uh, what uh, gave me hope and uh, I invite you to go on our YouTube channel and look at one video that is called Zero Waste Challenge. So it is about a family in Tahiti who got into a waste challenge. So over six months, they would wait their waste every week and uh, the family that was able to reduce the most would uh, win the challenge. And they actually managed to go from six to seven kilogram up to only one kilogram. Wow. And this is very nice, but the nicest is that the kids are really happy about it. You can really see that this was Hello. I think we've uh, lost our connection to Jakarta. We'll just try and reestablish. Oh, oh okay. we're back. And you're we back. back. <laughs> oh, okay. Okay, okay. <laughs> so where was I? <laughs> Zero waste challenge. Zero waste. Yes, yes. So, so it is very nice because they managed to reduce from six to seven kilograms up to one kilogram. But the best part is that the kids, uh, they are really fun doing this. They are very happy to find new ways, be creative in order to use uh, products that have uh, almost no packaging. And uh, this really, for me, gives me hope. If um, kids can find this fun, then I think we, we all uh, can do. <laughs> yes. And, and um, I've heard that Sweden cancelled a fashion uh, week because they said um, we need to now take a bit of perspective on the world and maybe fashion should not be a priority. And I think that's uh, what we should do. Um, yeah, think yeah. sometimes about priorities. No, I, I agree it should be uh, fun, but I'm thinking back to when um, our kids did their first beach cleanup. And um, they got all excited. They went out, they did the beach cleanup, and they thought it was great fun. They had a great day out on the beach. Then they did a second one, and then a third one, and then I remember them going out in the more recent one, and my daughter was saying, you know what? Why am I going out to clean other people's rubbish up? Um, <laughs> and I could see her point. She was older at that stage. She, she, obviously, she was older, but um, yeah. I, I I have to say though, I I think if if we can bring it in as a part of the fabric of life, you know, of I mean, I I would not think about going to the supermarket without my reusable bags now. Um, I don't want any plastic bags to put my tomatoes or my whatever into it if you have everybody doing it so that it's the norm if we could even in the western world have supermarkets where you can just bring your containers and fill them up with rice as they're trialing there's all sorts of small measures that can make huge differences if they just become there are boutique shops opening up doing that in in the way of, of functioning <coughs> in society of course, and um, I think uh, plastic was really a miracle when it happens, and it has uh, given us so many possibilities that we forgot also good habits that we had, and uh, these good habits can come back, and once they are there, it's not so much painful. It's really just uh, changing our way of thinking, but that doesn't mean it will really uh, get our life very... Uh, harder or sometimes um, I mean as you mentioned uh, when we are washing um, uh, uh, clothes made of uh, synthetic fibers uh, lots of them goes into the ocean so so now um, as I am a bit an extremist of the topics I am trying to get um, clothes in uh, natural fiber and I mean, when it's warm, uh, linen clothes are really perfect. It's is much more comfortable as this uh, viscose clothes, even mm. though they are light when you sweat. <laughs> this doesn't work so well. L as long ladies, as you're happy not so to iron. Ladies don't sweat. They, they glow, I believe. True, true. Oh, yes. Sorry, sorry. <laughs> so, I think, yeah. 
hell ironing yeah that's that's true but then you i mean mm. i'm not so much into ironing i think if you just uh, put them right away after the washing machine uh, to dry it's fine you don't need so much to iron i think I, I haven't ironed in 25 years the and crease I, look is very fashionable i have a linen skirt <laughs> i've worn for 20 years and it's fantastic because it's lasted 20 years and We're you know what once you get up it we doesn't make any difference. We are unfortunately <laughs> coming to the top of the hour. Annabelle, it has been such a pleasure to talk with you today. Thank you for sharing this fantastic project that you are sailing, working and living on so many levels um, and educating as you go. So thank you so much for sharing your time with us today. And for all of those that would like to learn a little bit more about Race for Water, there's a lot of information up on the website. Sure, sure. And um, in the end, it's funny because uh, we've not talked so much about the boat. But uh, no. you can, uh, in fact... <laughs> I'm going to have to get you back because I want to know what it's like inside to live there. So <laughs> that was my next yeah, question. <laughs> but um, you can find, there is actually also on the YouTube chain, there is quite some videos showing uh, the kite flying, showing um, there is a little visit of the boat also where we go through the main rooms and oh, the main okay. spaces. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So you can also find information there. And yeah, of course, if you want to invite me to talk again, this is really not a problem or I another member. Of I, I think we're going to have to invite you back to talk again. <laughs> There's lots <laughs> more to cover. Just final question. How many crew are on board um, the Odyssey as you go? The minimum is five. Uh, to maneuver the boat, we need to be five. And uh, we can be up to 12 because when we are at the stopovers, we've got a member of the team, land team, that comes on board and uh, help us with the conducting the different missions. Right. Yeah. So, uh, a small, but I um, imagine over five years, you're quite a tight crew. <laughs> yes, yes, we live a lot, uh, lots of experiences. <laughs> I'm sure. Um, and, you know, what an amazing experience to uh, travel around the world and, um, and bring awareness of something that is obvious you're deeply passionate about, as well as sailing, which I believe Thank is you. also something that is um, something you are passionate about as well. We well, want yes, to be sure. if you spend your life on a boat. <laughs> Indeed. Yes, yes, of course. The, the sea is my, is my world, I think. <laughs> <laughs> it certainly is at the moment. So thank you for helping us uh, spreading the words. Uh, it was very nice to chat with you it, and uh, wish you the very best. <laughs> oh, and you too. Thank you so much, Annabelle. Um, that was from Race for Water. We look forward to talking with you again. Uh, I, we're going to have thank another so 10 much. questions for the next time. But thank you so much <laughs> and safe travels when you leave Jakarta. Your next destination is? Um, Kota Kinabalu in Sabah, Malaysia. <laughs> ah, okay. Well, safe travels and fair winds. And uh, we look forward to catching you again. Thank you so much. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. You're listening to The Overboard Show. It is uh, past the news hour, so we're just going to go to some music. <laughs>